Hello, Strange Seeds. This is the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. I'm your host, Britt. Join me semi-weekly as we pull off our flesh suits and dive into the primordial waters of the mystical and magical, the downright freaky, the strange and bizarre, unsettling synchronicities, and the truly terrifying. You'll leave each episode with a list of reading recommendations if you feel so inclined to research further the topics we discuss, which I encourage you to do. Connect with a growing community of eclectic minds who strive to leave a more positive, compassionate imprint on this weird world we live in. So dive on in with us, and don't be scared. The water's fine. XV Planus is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Upon the advent of antibiotics, in particular the introduction of streptomycin, tuberculosis cases gradually dropped in the United States, and the need for large sanatoriums to care for patients faded after a time. Waverly Hills Sanatorium closed its doors in 1961, sending the last of its patients to other hospitals in the Louisville area. But in 1962, the doors of Waverly were reopened to serve a new purpose, and it was renamed the Woodhaven Geriatric Center. In stark contrast to the caring nature of Waverly Hills, Woodhaven, like so many repurposed institutions of the time, became an overcrowded, understaffed, neglectful, and at times, abusive dumping ground for the demented, the immobile, the criminally insane, and, sadly, discarded or troubled youth. Our subject tonight is one of these unfortunate children. In August of 1967, a young boy was admitted to Woodhaven, and with this child's arrival, a wave of strange phenomena began to flood the hallways and rooms of the massive medical facility. Reports from both staff and patients paint a picture detailing a vortex of paranormal activity during the child's stay, which lasted just over a week. Accounts of psychic and telekinetic activity, strange behavior of the animals that populated the surrounding forest, orbs, and moving shadows were all documented, yet the heads of staff did everything in their power to cover it up, bury it, erase it. But thanks to a small group of nurses, doctors, and maintenance staff, some of this knowledge managed to survive the purge of information. Join us tonight as we take one more walk through the corridors to share a fascinating tale of Woodhaven's most enigmatic patient. Shadow Eyes. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends and fiends, and welcome back to XV Planets. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood, and as always, I am very happy to be here to dive further into the weird with you. Last week, we discussed the last few hours of our eventful investigation of Waverly Hills, and that investigation, while initially shocking, was one of the most meaningful, life-changing experiences of my life, and perhaps to a few others on the team as well. While I put a lot of effort into sharing the experiences we had as a group, I haven't really touched on what it meant to me personally, short of the occasional nod to the constant interaction that occurred following our Estes session in the morgue. I'm going to share my final thoughts with you at the end of this episode, but there is a reason I held back until the end, and there is a reason I can't share it with you just yet, 
because there's one more piece of the puzzle to reveal first. One last sliver of history to cut into before we get caught up to the present. While our investigation was in March of this year, the phenomenon we experienced opened up an entire other passage of research that continued for months afterwards and, to be honest, will continue long after this episode airs. As I said, I am not done with Waverly Hills, and it is certainly not done with me. Moving forward, we will be visiting the historic site on the regular, continue to dig deeper, and this will likely spawn a little side project in time, but more on that later. In the meantime, we're going to close this series out with one specific tale that XV Planus correspondent Jamie Patterson uncovered during her research for this series. If you have an interest in Waverly Hills history and have done any digging yourself, there's a good chance you may have come across at least part of this story that is about to unfold. But we hope to bring another layer to this particular event that maybe you haven't heard about. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jamie back to the show for a conversation about Ricky, whose name has been changed for his own protection, and who is known among staff and patients by another name, Shadow Eyes. All right, folks, at this point, I would like to welcome back to the show Jamie Patterson. Jamie, as you know, helped us with the historical research and some of the uh, uh, personal stories of Waverly earlier on in this series. And I invited her back to help close this one out because there was one story in particular that she uncovered that I thought was worth doing a little bit of a deeper dive into it. Jamie, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Far out, solid and right on. Thanks for joining us again. We appreciate you taking the time. Glad to be here. Before we start barreling into this one particular story, I did want to step back for just a minute and then retouch on kind of what life uh, at Woodhaven was like. You know, we talked a lot in uh, episode one and two about what life at Waverly was like. But, uh, you know, life at Woodhaven was was like a polar opposite compared to the uh, the social structure and, and the medical care that they were receiving at Waverly. So I wanted us to, to touch on that just a little bit before we start going into this one particular individual story. Now, it, it switched over to uh, Woodhaven Home for the Geriatrics in 61. Is that right? I believe it was October of 62. October 62. Okay. Yes. Now, it started out as a home for geriatric patients, but uh, eventually they started essentially to make as many bucks as they possibly could. They just started taking every patient that they could, and that ranged from uh, the mentally ill to uh, the deranged to what was referred to at the time as undesirable children. Isn't that right? Correct. It was. Yeah. So uh, needless to say, things were not good there. I mean, there was uh, endless amounts of reports of abuse of, you know, abuse from uh, staff on patients, patients on patients, a considerable amount of neglect. It was not a very happy place by any way, shape or form. Didn't they end up getting shut down by investigative uh, journalists? Isn't that part of the reason they got the plug pulled on them? I did find some newspaper articles where some of the abuse was being exposed. And it. what I found, too, was the overcrowding was a big issue. Um, mm-hmm. They basically, more patients meant more money. So the first real investigative journalism that I uncovered was the overpopulation aspect. 
And then I think once they started going in there and digging around and talking to former employees and current patients, really to highlight the overpopulation is when some of these stories started coming out about the abuse that was happening. Gotcha. Okay. I don't really know if the journalism itself is what led to the shutdown, but it definitely got more eyes looking at the place as a whole, um, which could I could honestly probably be said and credited to it started opening all these issues up and the, and it led to their closure, but I'm not sure if it was directly related, but it definitely started putting them in the spotlight more. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, through that time, as it started to um, just start take on, you know, patient after patient after patient, uh, one of the things that I mentioned just a few minutes ago was, you know, they started dropping off undesirable children there. Correct. Now, this could this could range from anything to uh, uh, children with disabilities, both physical and mental, to um, uh, uh, I don't know, potentially violent or dangerous children. To unfortunately, uh, kids that were just a little bit different. Yes, and that was the heavy case and situation, particularly with boys that parents thought, by definition, were a little bit too feminine. Um, a little too but, sensitive. Yeah, yes, different, sure, but they were not really mentally or physically disabled in any way in any way they were just different or they didn't fit the mold of the all-american red red-blooded boy and so they admitted a lot of these kids with the goal to quote correct them so Mm -hmm. and what interesting ways they had to quote unquote correct them and which we'll get to that here in just a little bit um but the the dumping of these unwanted kids actually brings us to the story that we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into tonight. Now, for the sake of safety of our subject, we are going to refer to this child as Ricky moving forward. So uh, we will not be giving his real name out uh, for his own privacy and for his own peace. So from this moment forward, our subject will be known as Ricky. And uh, I know that a lot of you are wondering, why am I bringing Ricky up again when I reference the Creeper? as Ricky. Well, we're going to get to that. Don't you worry. <laughs> so uh, let's let's take a moment and actually talk about the arrival of Ricky at Woodhaven uh, Home for Geriatrics, because some pretty wacky stuff happened there, uh, judging by the accounts that you dug up. Yes, he arrived. Um, I'm not sure of the exact month, but he arrived in the year 1967. Um Digging around, I was able to link that he was possibly put in room 418. But mm-hmm. even upon his arrival, just just his presence really changed the tone at the facility. Um, he, he, of course, was brought there because Ricky was a feminine child. He was different in the in the, in the aspect that his father felt that he. Uh, I'll just go ahead and say, I think, I think his father was worried. Oh my gosh, my kid could possibly be a homosexual. He needs mm-hmm. to be corrected. Um, and, and let's be honest, like you would, you would see that a lot during this time frame in America. If, if uh, you know, you would see parents kind of drop their kids off into, it was almost like uh, old school conversion camps. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
leading up to him getting there, though, I should also be it should also be noted that some descriptions from childhood friends admittedly say that Ricky was always an odd child. He was very in tune with animals. Um, he did get bullied some in school, but he was always the first to take up for other children who were getting bullied. Um, by all accounts, he was described by most as a nice kid, but yes, a little bit quirky. And the, the, the reoccurring pattern of this connection to animals is something that followed him over into Woodhaven, which we'll get into. But I was able to do some digging around, and I found some quotations from former employees and patients. In fact, this one that I found, I believe this child, when he was a child, I think that he may have been there for the uh, same reason, quite similar to, to Ricky. Mm -hmm. But he was quoted as saying, the quote, the day he walked through the doors, nothing was the same for that week. Sure, we may have had odd things beforehand, but nothing like when that green-eyed boy walked in. The wind changed, the temperature became much colder, wild crows were outside covering the grounds, the trees, those devil birds kept landing on his window ledge, and it was extremely hard for anyone to sleep. And in fact, digging around with other patient accounts, what I found odd was the description of the birds in particular is what kept popping up. Apparently, with his arrival, it was a very Hitchcock-esque bird moment. Which, <laughs> you know, it's that's that's pretty odd. So, um, and not only birds, but they said that uh, the woods surrounding the facility, the deer, rabbits, squirrels, any and all kind of wildlife seemed to all of a sudden start popping up more frequently on the grounds, specifically upon his arrival. Right, and kind of like just approaching the tree line and hanging out, right? Yeah, nothing like coming, you know, up to, uh, it, it's almost kind of like they were hovering themselves, you know, kind of like they they were almost, curiosity was almost peaking within the wildlife too, you know, kind of thing. You know, if this kid had a mean streak in him, I, I would say we changed his name to Damien, but, um, <laughs> but he wasn't, that's the thing is like, there wasn't a, there was not a mean bone in this kid's body. In fact, there was, um, most of what I gathered looking in archives of newspaper articles, uh, blogs, uh, different publications, most of the children, his fellow patients, his age, seemed to be not really fearful of him, but they just noticed that he was different and that odd things started happening. So it wasn't that there was, but now you did have a handful that, you know, they're kids, some bullying I'm sure occurred, but for the most part, they were kind of leery of him. He was just different. Um, mm -hmm. I did find a comment commentary from a nurse who was employed there at the town that I think really shows that that contradiction of him is she was quoted as saying he was the most gentle soul I ever came into contact with. Yes, he was beautiful, the prettiest face and the most beautiful eyes I'd ever seen on a boy looking into his eyes gave me such peace, comfort, and we felt angels all around him. So he was very well 
cared and loved for by a handful of the nurses there. The, the mm-hmm. children and fellow patients were a little bit leery of him, though. Right. Well, going going back to his uh, his arrival, and and also speaking of nurses' testimony, didn't one of them say that they saw something pretty spectacular whenever he was getting out of the car? I can't recall that. Um, like saw orbs fly off of him or something? Yes, someone did say it seemed, in fact, I'm looking at, never mind, I found it right here. An orb now and then, and perhaps slight shadows, but nothing that seemed menacing. Okay. So it yeah. wasn't anything to, to be fearful of. I mean, it was almost like it, this interesting creature, so to speak, had kind of arrived here at the facility. And the winds just kind of changed upon his arrival. Yeah, they yeah. said, according to everything that I have found, that the entire atmosphere just totally shifted. It, it, right. it was it was an all encompassing kind of just the wind, the birds, sound, everything just kind of totally shifted in a set in, in the moment that he arrived. Right. Yeah. All right. So. So moving on beyond that, were there any other um, patient or nurse testimonies just regarding his character that you wanted to touch on before we, we move forward? I was able to find, uh, like I said, most people that knew him growing up, the one thing that was key, which will later explain his nickname, is that his eyes, that we, we really harp on his eyes. Apparently, he had these beautiful, gorgeous green eyes, and there seemed just to be some just spark or interest in, in the eyes. Um, but yeah, for the most part, everybody that was, that was quoted just said that there was definitely something different about him, but that it was nothing threatening by any means. Uh, but really other than that, that's about all that I could find leading up to his arrival was that he was just a different kid that had beautiful green eyes that was in tune with animals. And he was just a little strange, a little odd, but he never really hurt anybody kind of thing. So he was like me. <laughs> it's just like me as a kid. Like this is, this is me. Uh. This could be a lot of kids probably. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. True, true. <laughs> But again, like as I've expressed, I, I I do feel a certain uh, kinship to this this person and the phenomena that surrounds him. But we'll we'll get to that a little bit later on. And that brings us to where things start to get a little little kooky, a little little crazy. And uh, and here's where we get to introduce our villain of this story so far. And I like to call her Doc Shock. It just <laughs> sounded like a great villain name, you know. It's perfect, especially it's it's suiting, very suiting yeah. for her. <laughs> well, I was wondering if you could uh, you could tell us a little bit more about Doc Shock because you you did the research on this one, and I that's her name just keeps escaping me every time. Um, yes, and this kind of goes um, away from her direct connection to Ricky. This is just kind of a little background, but in nineteen forty seven, there was a psychiatrist by the name of Loretta Bender. Uh, She was very well respected among her peers. She uh, had been invited to go to multiple facilities throughout the country to conduct these experiments, which we're about to go into. But her uh, treatment, mode of treatment of choice was electroshock therapy, particularly with children. Yay. Yeah. Uh, According to, let's see. I found a medical publication that kind of highlighted some of her key works and 
to, to show you how much respect that she got, this was quoted in that publication. It is the opinion of all observers in the hospital, in the schoolrooms, of the parents and other guardians that the children were always somewhat improved by the treatment in so much as they were less disturbed, less excitable, less withdrawn, and less anxious. They were better controlled. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, you, you, less excited, less withdrawn, and less. That really just was like okay. Less alive too, like yeah. The, the, we pretty <laughs> much zapped them into zombie mode, but you know, but they were better controlled, seemed better integrated and more mature, and were better able to meet social situations in a realistic fashion. They were more composed, happier, and were better able to accept teaching or psychotherapy in groups or individually. So that kind of puts in perspective of, of what she and her mode of treatment was res- was was respected in the medical community at the time. Yeah, which is barbaric by today's standards. Now, well, however, you know that that being said, modern day methods of electro shock therapy are actually quite effective and and can be very positive. But yeah, in its infancy, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just barbecuing people's brains. Yeah, we were pretty much getting them to the point of, yeah, like these kids were basically zombies. And I'm sure they did act better behave because they were scared to friggin' death, dude. Yeah, I mean, not. but. And, and so with with the addition of, of these undesirable or uh, um, children that need to be corrected coming into Waverly, they, they reached out to her, right? Or did she volunteer to come down? I believe they reached out to her in uh, 1955. She made headlines because she had administered 20 shock treatments to a child under three years old who was actually, yeah, an infant essentially who was, uh, um, who was, who was on the children's ward at the infamous Bellevue hospital in New York. She administered this treatment eventually to more than 500 children and enjoyed a career as one of the most honored of her time. Um, And something that I found that I just wanted to plug to kind of show the other side of it is I'm not sure if he's still alive, so I don't know if we would want to respect his privacy, but I will just say his first name was Ted. And he was a six-year-old foster child who was subject to one of Bender's experiments. And this is his direct quote. I was six years old in 1944. So this was actually three years prior to when she really started getting known nationally for her treatments. Mm -hmm. A psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital in New York, Dr. Loretta Bender, had just begun her series of experiments experiments with shock treatment on children and she needed more subjects. I like how they're referred to as subjects. You know, they're not, <laughs> they're not people anymore, you know, they're not kids. No. You know. Well, apparently Ted had been diagnosed as a schizophrenic. He quote was torn away from my foster parents. I was given 20 shock treatments, 18 of which I was dragged down the hallway crying, a handkerchief stuffed in my mouth so that I wouldn't bite off my tongue. After I woke from the treatment, I did not know who I was, where I was, but just knowing I had a feeling that I had really experienced something traumatic. After four months of this, I was returned home. 
I will be the first to say that shock treatment changed me from a shy little boy who liked to sit in a corner and read to a terrified child who would only cling to my foster mother and cry. I couldn't remember the little boy I was told I had been. I couldn't find my way around my own neighborhood. The social worker who visited me every month told me that my memory loss was simply a symptom of my mental illness. A few months later, I was shipped to a state hospital where I spent the next 10 years of my life. He went on to basically call Dr. Bender a, quote, mad scientist. However, she was a psychiatrist and several other children were subjected to her treatments, and she is still a leader in her field. With many articles published in prestigious journals, she still draws a salary from the New York State Department of Mental Hygiene, and not one voice was ever raised within the entire profession to protest what she had done. Um, so that kind of gives you a perspective of, okay, here's what all the medical pubs are saying about her, but here's what's coming out of the mouth of a child who actually was a subject. <laughs> I'm so. seriously envisioning like, uh, Jim Carrey from Batman forever as the Riddler, you know, with the electric, uh, you know, like yeah. the mad scientist look of, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, but yet she even, Knowing what we know now, she was still highly, highly put on the shoulders, you know, of her peers. Right. And most right. Of but the, as we read this, like, swear, man, this is a super villain. It really is. It really is. In fact, and I found another description of a nine-year-old boy who was subject to her test. And he said that he admittedly tried to hang himself when he was older in life because he just wanted to, quote, get it over with. Jesus. He, and he was quoted as saying... I, w- I was afraid of dying and wanted to get over it fast. It was I was more afraid of terrifying shocks, and I wanted to be done with it. So it just baffles me that even though you might consider what she was doing a, a, a an effective method, if if you have children that are talking about committing suicide, that didn't raise a red flag. I just, but I guess. I guess right. during that time, they just was like, well, this is coming out of the mouth of a disabled person, you know, kind of, we're going to trust well, the doctor. <laughs> well, even, even if, you know, that wasn't the case, like, it's not like they were doing um, aftercare with these kids. So they, they could have run them through these experiments and like watched them for a week and like, oh, look at that. So docile, so nice, so fine. Send them on home. Oh, and yeah. then it's years later that they start having these traumatic things flood back at them, you know? They basically became a number on Dr. Bender's list of reformed patients, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then was never revisited it again. So and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, so that's kind of how she was viewed when I believe she was invited to come to, I don't think she volunteered her services or contacted them. By all I could find, I, I truly believe that she was invited to come handle these, these children um, and unfortunately, Ricky was among, I think, a group of three or four that were almost like her guinea pigs at Woodhaven. Yeah. And this sets off a chain reaction of things that span over the course of a few months, I believe, and span several states. And we're going we're gonna to cover all that stuff here, but it is... This, this, gets pretty, this gets pretty intense. It gets pretty crazy. So yeah, Doctor, uh, what, what was her name again? I'm sorry, it's Loretta Bender. 
Loretta finally shows up at Waverly, and and as you said, Ricky's amongst the small group of kids. This is where some of the digging that you did gets really fascinating because it it's my understanding that he was only you know, he was only subjected to maybe three treatments, right? Three, four at the most, but it was uh-huh. only a handful. And it was this really, really fast uh, raise in intensity from each one. And from all I can gather, the first couple ones were were barbaric in the sense of what was going on. But I think the third one is when it really the ante got up. Oh, that's what it was. So the first two sessions goes through it and Ricky is, you know, obviously distraught. Uh, and it is, isn't when he's coming back for the third time that he finally earns his nickname. Yes, the third time is when all hell breaks loose, pretty much. All right, so let's let's talk about that. All right, let me get. I believe it was in August of 1967. Ricky was one of about four children that had been continuously brought in over a span of time to have these treatments done. The daughter of one of the nurses in the room uh, said that her mother perhaps on her deathbed when she was ill just kind of got this off her chest but at night in August of 1967 an experiment was being held with Ricky with a Dr. Bender a Dr. Buckman I could not find his first name a male orderly named David who will get back to him Mm mm-hmm and another male nurse. Um, And I think it should be a key point to point out here, too, is that I believe this orderly was one that also had a very bad history with Ricky. He was, to all all account what I've uncovered, he was the type of employee that probably shouldn't be working in the setting that he was in. Um, Mm. Bullying, belittling, abusive, very... So him and Ricky kind of had a little short history here before this experiment even took off. Yeah. Uh, Ricky comes in for his, I believe, third treatment. They strapped him down on the table. There was no way that Ricky would be able to leave the room or get up or destroy anything. And then let's see. No, I'm sorry. It was his second. This was his second therapy treatment. Okay, that's what I thought. Because I, I, yeah, I thought there was, I thought there was only three. Yeah, and then after after the third one, they were like, "Screw it, get this kid out of here." <laughs> yeah, this was, was, yeah, it was the second. Okay. Um, during this particular experiment, Doctor Bender suggested that they raise the volts on the ECT machine the second time around. Yeah, great idea. So, yeah, so apparently Ricky wasn't <laughs> reforming quick enough for them. So their suggestion was, well, we'll just crank it up some more. Sure. So, yeah. And this is where it, it kind of starts taking a, a, a turn here. Um, when they hit the switch, quote, that child let out a scream that traveled the entire building. His screams were deafening. deafening. After 30 seconds, he spit out his rubber mouth guard. And that is when Dr. Buckman walked over and slapped Ricky with such a force that it turned his right eye, it bruised his right eye. The second Ricky was slapped is when, quote, all hell broke loose in the ECT room, which I later found out was on the fourth floor, I believe, of of Woodhaven. 
The daughter of this nurse said that her mother relayed that she was watching his eye, Ricky's eyes when he was slapped and she started crying for him. It tore her up to see what was happening. And this is where the shadow eyes nickname kind of comes into play. She said his eyes turned a deep green. His face turned bright red. The veins in his forehead were swelling and throbbing. And it seemed to all take place in a split second. But the look that young Ricky gave the physicians in the room gave my mother nightmares. So this is kind of where it all started kicking off. Right. Yeah. At the that, shadow eyes bit. Yes. At that point, And this is where things really started getting crazy. The nurse was uh, quoted as saying that the radiator started banging out loud. Lights flickered on and off. Glass beakers started smashing into the walls. It seemed as if, though, everything that wasn't anchored down went flying. And then here's that Hitchcock bird reference. All of a sudden, crows were flying and smashing into the room windows. At that point, with everything getting thrown around the room, this nurse said that she got hit in the face with I assume a glass speaker, but some glass hit her in the face. And at this point, that is when she said that a strange mist started forming right before everyone in the room. She said she began looking at everyone's eyes and face to make sure they were seeing what she was seeing. The mist started forming into this giant solid shape with no clear definition of arms or legs but definite like a body shape figure. Um, mm. She did go on to say that there was also the most horrid stench. It seemed to smell like bile, sulfur, all mixed together into one. Um, at that point, this black shadow reached to the ceiling, moved over and appeared to be shrouding Ricky completely. At that point, horrifying sounds start happening this 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 form this shadow seems to be trying to protect ricky and at that point this is when the nurse fainted she said when she came to she was in the minor surgery room getting treated for the cuts on her face and she at that point did not really know what happened to ricky and but she got the vibe that it was something trying to be covered up. She said that the whole atmosphere, the vibe of the place was almost like a cover up type thing. Like we got to get, we got to get rid of this kind of thing. Um, so is this also where it got to the point where they, we got to get rid of him too? I believe so. I think that um, by all accounts, this nurse seemed to take a real liking to Ricky. And even though it was her job to be in there, it's quite clear that she did not support or believe what was being done to him. Right. I, I can't recall where I found it, but I swear I think I found somewhere else that she attempted to go see him to check on him and that he was very silent, very, but that she said that there seemed to be an understanding between them that she did not wish for that to have happened to him. Right. Yeah. And also it, uh, the other the, the people that were in the room, including her superiors, were very uh, were in a hurry to get to her to tell her this didn't happen. 
Yeah, this yeah. This kind of as, as I would expect. And as you figured out, as we pushed forward looking into this, there was definitely a considerable amount of cover up. But before we get any further into that, I want to take one second to backtrack to what you're describing, this mist developing in the room that enveloped Ricky, right? Right. When I said earlier on in the series that I think that what I experienced at Waverly is not necessarily one of these common creeper entities. I think that's what I saw. And I think this might be the first time it came around or at least the first time it manifested in front of somebody. And it does make me wonder if that phenomenon that still lingers at Waverly and I experience myself, it makes me wonder if this is a leftover traumatic psychological um, scar leftover from an incredibly gifted young boy. Yeah, I ca- by all accounts, and, and granted, there's no way to know for sure. I mean, we, we could never dig around so deep enough to really find it. But just on the surface skimming, based on paranormal accounts, uh, just newspaper articles, recordings, reports from physicians and or patients, this seems to be the first time when a quote, shadow type figure appears. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there were a few things reported, odd, odd sounds, you know, just strange feelings of anxiety, things like that. But there was never a real just like, this is a shadow. You know, this is a black mist figure. To, for all accounts, this seems to be the first time that it appears. Now, granted, like, like I said, we could be digging for years and we might could find something, but this one oh, came, I, you we know, could be digging yeah. for years alone on the history never mind about the paranormal aspect we'll never get answers on that side so i'm not even worried about it but no. um but yeah no i just i wanted to point that out i really think that that is i think that was the moment of creation or the birth of one of the many phenomena that i experienced at uh, waverly hills and i uh, also, too, that, that I found interesting is that I obviously wasn't with y'all, was not with y'all on the actual investigation. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you had your experience, didn't you tell me that you didn't really so much feel afraid of it or fearful of it? But you were very interested in it, for sure. Hold on, don't get me wrong. The The very first interaction that I had with it scared the ever-loving hell out of me, and I don't think I'll ever be able to shake that feeling. But by the end of the evening, it had been following me around so much, and I had seen it so much and interacted with it that, yeah, once the shock went away, yeah, I felt a, like kind of a, a connection or a, a, a kinship to it of some sort. And I think what's neat, well, not neat, well, I guess interesting is that by the nurse's account is that the people that were being cruel to Ricky, this child, the people that were clearly the ones there for bad intent, this so-called force seemed to be very uh, aggressive towards them. And uh, indifferent to others. It, yeah. The, it was as if others did not exist, but that when it came to Ricky, though, the nurse was reported saying that it was very clear he was trying to protect him. Yeah. Hmm. Let's pick it back up from um, the nurse waking up to kind of feeling like a cover-up was going on. So she wakes up to kind of chaos and panic and disorder and and everybody kind of doing the 
like you would expect on the movies. Hush, hush, you know, get rid of those papers, that type of thing. Yeah, there's nothing to see here type thing. <laughs> nothing, nothing to see here. Move on, yeah. move on. <laughs> Out of curiosity, that particular nurse, did she have any other, any interactions with Ricky beyond this point? I don't believe she did. I think, as we said before, I think she ventured over to his room to check on him kind of thing. I think there was a mutual understanding between them that, that she was there out of concern and care. Um, it wasn't long after that, which we'll go into that, that he was quickly found somewhere else to go. She, yeah, but, but she did have, according to the daughter, she really was just really upset about this her whole life. And I think near her older years started talking about it more and getting it out. And I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I think that they reconnected before her passing um, when he was an adult. Hmm. And that okay. the conversation had between them was of mutual respect and of, of there really, it, in, in his words, there really wasn't any forgiveness to give because it, she didn't do anything. She didn't do anything yeah, wrong. Right. Yeah. Thing. And in fact, um, to, to be honest, I think he provided comfort to her. She was ill and her health was fading. I think she knew that her time of passing was near and, for all accounts, it was a very pleasant reconnection, a very comforting, pleasing reconnection. That does kind of bring it to the point where I, I guess that was kind of that whole incident was kind of the last straw for everyone at Waverly. And they were like, get this kid out of here. But before we talk about what happened to him after that, let's backtrack just a little bit. And let's talk about what happened to some of those people that were in that room during that uh, electroshock therapy session that went off the charts. Well, I would like to tell you that Dr. Pender got her just desserts and, and was called out for this quote treatment, but I don't believe she did. In fact, when she continued, I don't know if she continued so much electric shock therapy on children, but she was still very much well-respected. And upon her passing years later, she was still tooted as kind of this this renowned psychiatrist. So if you're expecting justice on Dr. Bid, Doc, Doc Shock, it will not be found here. Um, but the, well, fing fingers crossed that there is a hell then. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, the, um, uh, the orderly that was in there. Okay. We know there was an orderly named David. There was another orderly in the room that I seriously believe may have been this janitor that we're about to speak of, but I can't a hundred percent connect it. But okay. I, I do know that this David orderly though was a, an employee of Woodhaven that for lack of a better word, abused Ricky. Um, I don't, I know it was mental and physical. There seemed to be some direction of sexual abuse as well, but I could not confirm that. Yeah. But it was obvious that there was a history of abuse between little Ricky and, and this, this orderly. And in fact, he actually, let me get to my notes. He actually died in a car wreck. I want to say within a week or two, very shortly after this last shock therapy treatment. Right. Um, yep. He was leaving work. His shift was over. He was leaving work, got into a horrible car wreck, and then died in the car wreck. Um, the janitor, who I believe was in there, I have connected the fact that the janitor 
could have been a potential lookout guy for while this abuse was happening with the orderly and Ricky. So that's kind of his connection. He actually, it was cited as an accident that he fell from the roof and had a severe back injury and was disabled the remainder of his life. However, it's, it's been alluded that he has said he felt as if he was pushed. Mm -hmm. So that's two situations of, of male orderly slash employees that had a history of abuse with Ricky that we know one of them was in that room during that final experiment that came to some pretty violent endings. One was killed in a car wreck and other ones permanently disabled, confined to a wheelchair for life. Right. Now, what about this, uh, the Dr. Buchanan is, is that the guy Buckman. that Buckman Buckman's. Buckman. Yes. Is that the guy that uh, for a while was like out there on on forums stating that he used to be a doctor there and, and had something he wanted to share? I d no, Buckman, I believe, was one of the doctors that was totally supportive of, of Bender's methods. Um, there was another physician who I'm not sure if he was in the room, but he was very well aware of what was going on and did not like what was going on, could see it for what it was. And he actually appeared on very many public post forums as saying that he, that he wanted to more or less get it off his chest, that what was being done to these children, particularly Ricky, was not acceptable. I don't really think a lot of people maybe took him seriously because the tone that he had on some of these forums was very like, please, someone listen to me. I have this to share. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. Well, that, that same gentleman is the guy who said that he was going to drop all of his, uh, his records off to the Reen Institute, uh, if nobody else reached out to him before he passed. And I reached out to him with the contact info that we found, and maybe I'll do a pickup and explain this guy's name and all that stuff later, but it's pretty obvious that he's passed at this point. So I am digging into the Reen Institute and seeing if they'll they'll maybe help us out with this. Because even after this episode, this story is far from finished for me. Uh, it's It really is. There's just too much to to delve further into. Yeah, I think that that particular position has passed because I noticed that in several of the... Now, granted, they're quote their blogs you know their forums that <laughs> granted that but he was very active in these communities as wanting to to say what he needed to say and then i think probably about 2018 it was almost like just dead silence yeah so for, yep. for someone to be so active and then all of a sudden just drop after clearly saying i'm in I'm older in age. I, my health's not the best. It's oh yeah, he said he was like in his nineties. Yeah, it's safe to say he that he's passed. So yeah. So yes, Reen, if you're listening to this, I'll be coming by soon. All right. So at at this point, with everything that had happened, uh, the staff of Waverly had finally just they've had enough. It was a little too much for them, and they ended up giving uh, our dear old Ricky the boot, and kicked him out of there. They did, but yeah. it, it also, the, the court case happened in that time as well. Um, it was October of 1967. The Woodhaven abuse trial went to criminal court in the state of Kentucky. And oh, I'm trying to get, I believe it was October 15th, 1967. But either way, it was that fall season of the same year in which this experiment happened. Um 
Ricky was in fact considered, he was represented by attorney, I believe her name was Edith Phillips. The, def- right. the defendants were listed as Dr. Loretta Bender, Dr. Buckman, a Dr. White, and a Pat, do we want to say her name for private? I don't What do you think? Uh, let's, let's just, yeah, let's, let's leave it just in case. Well, Pat, who was a nurse, um, on October 15th, 1967, interesting testimonies and events that quote occurred in the dark days that prevailed inside the Woodhaven center in Jefferson County on said minor Ricky, the judge, Alfred Eastlack Driscoll. After looking at this child minor sitting before him and just hearing three minutes of details of the case, called for a settlement order in immediate immediate favor of the plaintiff. So this abuse came to court, and I'm not sure if it was particularly this therapy session or just in general the, the broad spectrum that Ricky endured from his entrance to his departure. But... After three minutes of hearing testimony, the judge immediately was just like, okay, I've heard enough kind of thing. Uh, It it says that it was closed and sealed. I have went above and beyond trying to find these court documents, but I fear with them being sealed, it's going to be a no-go because the only way to get them unsealed is to have a judge order and good luck with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But they did say it was extreme sensitive issues, a very unusual realm of nature. It was a great embarrassment and humiliation for all staffs, doctors, and said involved of the treatment of the childminder while in the care of the Woodhaven staff. In fact, the judge's last remarks were quoted as saying, the welfare and care of this childminder within the psychiatrist's circle of health, including his parents, in this case, failed this child in every way possible. Huh. You know, I don't think you and I ever actually talked about that part of the story. So that's that's interesting. That's a new one to me. But this also means that there is there's this like so so if the experiments were happening in August, this trial is happening in October, and what happens next comes in December, there's this whole chunk of time that is just kind of unaccounted for during this odd transitional period. Well, my question too is someone that's in the journalism business, I follow several cases whether they be murder cases and for something to go into court that quick that sends a red flag to me I mean I've covered murder cases where the people got arrested literally two years ago and we still haven't went to trial so for Uh, well I mean our legal system is not it is way more complicated than it used to be (laughs) (laughs) true true but I also had to ask myself, like, was this in an effort to handle and get rid of this quickly kind of thing as well? I mean, the the journalist to me was all like, hmm, you know, like, what's, why going so quick kind of thing. But, but yes, there is a span in between there where I couldn't really find out what was going on a couple months there where it was pretty quiet. I assume he stayed there. But not for long. I think maybe some of the wheels were getting in motion to move him, which is what we'll talk about later is where he went next. Right. Yeah. Well, I no, honestly, I think we're pretty much there because that that was his time with with Woodhaven. 
and then the trial. Uh, I'm I'm not so sure that they would have been keeping him there after everything that happened, uh, because what we do know is that on I want to say it was like December thirteenth or fourteenth, nineteen sixty seven. Old dad rolls up to a brand new sanatorium to drop him off again. Yes. And I think it should be noted, too, that I did find some information that said that upon his departure at Woodhaven, that a just heavy, just weight, just vibe totally seemed to leave with him. Huh. It can be taken either way, you know, but I do find it interesting to note that now it could have been some internal guilt that some of the people perhaps may have felt among themselves and seeing that. Oh, I'm sure that, that that accounted at least for part of it. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of the, even the patients at the time said that the vibe totally shifted after he left and this kind of foreboding feeling that was within its hall seemed to kind of start slowly going away and, and slowly getting back to normal. Right. Well, so he leaves, we go through the course, there's this period that he is unaccounted for, and then, uh, as I said, December 13th, St. Albans Sanatorium in, uh, that's Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania? Uh, Virginia, I believe. Virginia. Yes. St. Albans Sanatorium in Virginia. Um, Ricky and his dad pull up to this one, and it's almost like a carbon copy cutout of what happened when he showed up last time to Waverly. He gets there and immediately animals start showing up. Weird stuff starts happening. But this time is something completely different. And when you told me about this, I like, I, God, I just wish there was surveillance footage for this. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) No kidding. Now, he only stayed there 22 hours. He was in solitary confinement. So keep in mind that this kid did not really interact with any of the other patients or staff for that matter, because I think at this point people were just trying to figure out, okay, where can we get this kid? You know, Mm -hmm. nobody wanted to deal with kind of the baggage that came with him. And I can only imagine in the, in the mental health world. I mean, the first thing that the, 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 the staff's probably wondering is, okay, well, why in the hell did he get kicked out of Woodhaven? You know, I'm sure this story got around. (laughs) So he was only there for 22 hours in a solitary confinement room and multiple children who were there at the time admitted that I didn't have a lot of interaction with him. I know that he was more or less put away for his brief time there. But more than one person commented on saying that shadows were everywhere, that they seemed to be following. It was almost as if they came in with this child, which goes back to the this whole shadow presence. It's just right. It's, yeah. This, this all encompassing shadow that, that keeps coming and following this child. Um And there have been reports of a similar entity at St. Albans. Stay tuned next year because we're going and we're going to see if it's there. Uh, Nothing really crazy, I think, happened at St. Albans. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. But just the the foreboding presence, the shadow figures, the, the fact that there was someone in the building that just brought this heavy weight with them seemed to be there. The lots of children did say that still to this day the sounds 
that they heard during that short period that he was there are still in their heads. And in fact, one uh. of them even said, I believe, I totally believed I dodged a bullet because I left him alone. So his 22, I mean, let's just say a day. He was there a day. It was total, total, just weird, weird vibes, shadow figures. It took less than a day for this staff to take a look at this kid and be like, nah, we're good. I think you should get him out of here. Yeah, he was only there for a day. And then, yes, he was released at that point. And by all accounts, I believe he was released perhaps to a uncle. I don't think his dad came and got him. But Correct. I, I think from that point forward, his dad just kind of disowned him. At that point, I think his family, what what members he had that actually cared for him were like, OK, you know, let's just take him because he does yeah. not appear to have been admitted to any other facility after that. Well, let's talk about that great travel, you know, driving all the way from Virginia to Kentucky. You got to go through a couple of states to get to where you're going. Chances are you're probably going to end up driving through West Virginia. And here's the last little cherry on top of weird for you. Yes, it says that three months, it was three months and a couple weeks. And I'm not really confident about the time frame, but the bottom line is that after he was thrown out of two facilities, he arrived with his uncle, who I have his real name, but we'll just call Tom, I guess, because I don't want to release his identity, but. They're heading out to make a short trip to Ohio from West Virginia to pick up some furniture and pay a short visit with family. At about 4.40 p.m., Ricky tells his uncle, you didn't tell me that we were going to go over the Silver Bridge. At that point, Ricky then tells his uncle to stop the truck at once. Now, keep in mind that his family kind of knows that Ricky's different. So when he's so adamant that we don't need to cross it, his uncle is like, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> like me, I mean, I hate to say it, my kids, I'd be like, sit down, you know, come on, buckle up. We're, you know, we're, we're getting across the bridge. But the uncle took key to, to his warning, to which he did stop and pulled off on the side of highway, of the highway. Um, Ricky then got out of the truck, walked over to the north side of the highway, stood there, began to feel nauseous, got sick, started to cry. Sort of like hyperventilating and stuff. Total too, right? panic attack kind of mode. Yeah. Um, the uncle seems to know that, that there's something not right, but I'm going to let him be and let it, you know, let him get it out. Let, let's kind of get through this little, this attack. And his uncle was saying that he could just tell that there was something terrible in the way in the air by the way that Ricky was acting. He returned to his truck and at this point has kind of gathered his emotions and in a very confident but calm, stern way, he tells his uncle, do not drive over that bridge. Let's find another way. Do not drive over that bridge. And then the uncle looks at his watch and remembers that it was 451 because he instantly thought, well, what route can I take to get where I need to be at a certain time? So he specifically remembers looking at his clock to see what better route would work. And it was about 451-ish p.m. And he said that he gave Ricky a few minutes to get back together, get himself together. He was fine. They chose a different route. And then we all know what happened about five minutes later after that. If, and yes. you know more about that than me. 
Yeah. All right. So uh, in December, on December 15th of 1967, the Silver Bridge collapsed in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Now, if that name rings a bell and Point Pleasant rest, uh, rings a bell, that is because this is the site of the infamous Mothman flap of the late 60s. And that is just absolutely insane. For, for if, if you don't know about the Mothman prophecies and everything that happened in Point Pleasant, I honestly don't know why you're listening to the show, uh, because by this point, you should already be well-versed in that stuff. Um, but what I can tell you, it was, it was 19 months of the weirdest crap that any one small Americana town could take. You had cryptids, you had poltergeists, you had UFOs, you had shadow people, you had the men in black, you had every possible bit of weirdness you could possibly think of bombard this town for 18, 19 months. And to know that this kid was there minutes, just minutes before this happened, I'm getting chills over here right now. I I just... I will be the first to admit and, and go ahead and and get on to me, John, but I was unaware of this story. I'd heard of Mothman, but I didn't know all the fine details. And I can vividly remember texting you and being like, well, apparently this kid also was at the scene of some silver bridge collapsing. And you were like, what? And I lost, I lost it. Yeah. I was, yeah. What? What? No. <laughs> yeah. If yeah, we had a I, record I, player, it definitely went, er, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was like, hold the phone. Jamie, <laughs> Jamie, that is going to be my Christmas present to you. I'm sending you a copy of the Mothman prophecies. You've got to read this thing. It is, it is gonzo journalism. But in the paranormal world. Well, that, that's just even better. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I mean, it's, well, uh, far less hallucinogens and violence, I would say. <laughs> it's not self-induced. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Uh, but it, uh, uh, very much, you know, John Keel wrote him, he essentially wrote himself into the story of what was happening in Point Pleasant, but everything was already happening there long before he showed up. But... I will say too, I was able to find, I don't, I don't feel uncomfortable saying this guy's name because it's quoted in the newspaper, but an article that appeared in the Fairmont, Fairmont Times, West Virginia, a man by the name of Cecil Thomas was quoted in the article. And I found this fascinating because it almost validates this theory that, that Ricky was on the scene. We all remember what we just talked about his time at Woodhaven, the one thing that every good or bad person commented on was the green eyes, green eyes, mm-hmm. green eyes, green eyes. This guy was quoted in the newspaper. He showed up shortly after the, the bridge collapsed. If not at the exact moment, he was not injured. He was merely just a witness being interviewed by reporters. And it said, he said, quote, at exactly 4:45 PM ish, my wife and I noticed the striking young boy, about maybe 11 or 12 years of age. As we drove by the child, he looked at us both for a split second with these piercing green eyes. He was seen standing on the north side of the highway next to the Silver Bridge, sobbing, holding back his hair, and he was bending over, uh, throwing up. He was sick. Standing close to a black pickup with an elder gray-haired man sitting behind the wheel, which we can assume is the uncle. Now, if I'm just casually reading that newspaper article, I would like, okay, well, that's interesting key point, but knowing what we know of the, the reoccurring description of Ricky with his eyes to me uh-huh. validates 
that if it's just the, a coincidence, that's a heck of a coincidence. <laughs> well, you know, especially with every, the way everything lines up so perfectly with the other testimony, it it lends some credence to it. So it's quite obvious that this kid had something up, up, about him. This, this, yeah, he was definitely oh, yeah. a, a, an interesting character. That's for sure. <laughs> he was definitely in touch with the world in a very different way, and. Uh, quite possibly gifted in ways that we don't really have words for yet. I um, agree. Yes. Now, what I want to find really, in, uh, what I found really, really interesting about looking into all this, and you know, its ties to the shadow entities or the creeper at Waverly, whatever you want to call it, is, folks, we found out that this guy is still out there, yeah. and we're not going to touch on that. At all, because I 100% want to uh, give him all of his privacy and all his peace and all his quiet. Um, there are some stories about what happened to him after this moment at Point Pleasant. And they're out there, but I honestly, I kind of don't want to tap into him because I don't want to give anyone any fodder to potentially go uh, bother this man. And for all accounts, it seems that folks have found him and attempted to reach out to him for his story or to uh, investigate him, research him, just talk to him. And it, it has not gone very well. He is, he's, it's clearly no. obvious that he wants to forget about this tragic chapter of his life. Yeah. And we intend to 100% respect that and honor that. But uh, if by any chance this makes it to his ears, if you would like to tell the story from your point of view, We'd love to hear it. And uh, I think that's that pretty much wraps up our, our our grand dive into Waverly, at least for the time being, Jamie, because eventually, you know, I'm going to end up going back and there will probably be a thousand other stories to go back into. But uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not done with this story. Like the whole thing, Waverly in general, there's just it's such a rich history and it touches in on so many things that excite me from history to the paranormal to architecture it's it's all just fascinating yeah even just going back to kind of that first podcast that i did with you waverly has always been on my radar it's just a fact even the structure itself i mean just studying the architecture of the place i mean it's it's a, a very fascinating incredible place and i i truly believe that when it was waverly that there were good intentions within its soul a hundred percent. Now, granted, some of the methods may have not been correct, but I think that they were done with the best intentions. And for the we most, didn't know at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the most part, too, just going down so many rabbit holes. The the only the real dark period obviously starts at at the Woodhaven era. A hundred percent. To be honest, most of the stuff that I found on Waverly that was kind of questionable involved uh, employees. It was kind of that that I, I, that that Edgar Allan Poe story, you know, where the insane were actually caring for the sane kind of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, the scary stuff involved quote, you know, healthy body, normal people, and that could you know go off into a whole other <laughs> dive but but Woodhaven is when it really started getting dark and I just found that this story about this tragic situation that happened to this young man immediately grabbed my attention as I continued to look 
And by all accounts, it's the first time that I found any report of this, quote, shadow figure. Is it the creeper? Who knows? But it's, Who knows? it's a heck of a, a crumb trail that's got a lot of similarities with it. And I have just no doubt in my mind that, that Ricky's presence probably spurred this, this entity to be there. I'd be inclined to agree, and, and I will explain a little bit more a little bit further into this episode. But in the meantime, uh, Jamie, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this this kind of wrap-up episode of Waverly. Do you have any final thoughts or um, theories, questions, suggestions, anything you want to plug while we still got a few more minutes? I just think it was a story that needed telling. I think that, that you and your team have done a wonderful job as far as the 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 early histories of of Waverly kind of painting a picture, setting the scene. Uh, The stories of the people and the workers in there are are just really remarkable and incredible. And unfortunately, the Woodhaven era takes a turn. But through my whole researching of this, it was just this weird gut feeling that has uncovered Ricky's story that I needed to keep digging. It's just keep, keep plugging away, keep keep looking for this particular subject. I'd hit on a couple things every now and then. I'd be like, eh, that's interesting. Write that down. But his particular story really just struck with me because... It, it sticks to your ribs. It really yeah, does. It's, it's just a horrible situation. And even if you removed the paranormal aspect of it, I mean, the, it's no child deserves that. And I guarantee no. you that he probably wasn't the only one. So Oh, definitely not. Yeah. So if nothing else, it uncovered and hopefully would, would fix kind of methods that were used at that time. Right. Especially yeah. on children. I mean, I have a kid this age. That's hor- I mean, I just, I can't. Oh, I'm sure it makes you cringe and every time yeah. you're reading this stuff. It's like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. And it goes back to what I said during that first podcast. I know that the, 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 the XV Planis handles the paranormal and unexplained and, and, but the real horror is the, the real truth. That's the real story <laughs> to me that, that that's the scary part. That's the scary. I, I, part. <laughs> I don't know. You asked me, it's about 50, 50 at this point for me, but um, it's uh, I'm never going to be the same after that place. Can't wait to go back though. Put myself in front of it again. Anyway, um, Jamie, thank you so much for all, all of the time you put into this. Uh, we can't thank you enough for the amount of input you put into the research and for sharing your point of view on all this. It was a blast to have you. I hope you'll come back onto the show soon. You want to get in on the USS uh, North Carolina research with us? Totally, totally, totally. I will be all on right. it. <laughs> all right. Excellent, my friend. Well, thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. I'd like to thank Jamie for all her hard work researching for this episode and, well, this whole series for us. This has been a long and exhausting series, and I sincerely appreciate each and every one of you for sticking with us so far. It means the world to me that our adventures have captured your interest, and I hope we can continue to do so. Before we come to the end, I wanted to talk a little bit about my own personal conclusions. When we booked the investigation, I already had a strong feeling that we would experience some activity while on location. In part because Waverly has such an amazing track record of near-constant activity, but also because it seems that no matter where I go, there it is. Something is going to happen. 
What I was not expecting was the level of intensity of the phenomenon and how it would interact with us. I cannot explain what is happening in Waverly. But the more I do this, the more I realize that maybe we aren't meant to. But something Lisa said to me earlier in this series still lingers in my ears. Maybe it's a question of why this is happening, not what. Why did it interact with me so intensely? Why did the creeper follow me? Why did the tiny lights and giant shadows morph into the being that I saw? Why was I touched during the Estes session in the morgue? After the initial shock of all of these experiences wore off some two weeks later, and after Jamie and I dug further into the story of Ricky, I started to connect some dots that, for me personally, shed a little light on the whys. Now let me be clear here and say that all of what I'm about to share is pure theory, but let's not forget the most powerful evidence one can find on a paranormal investigation is likely to be the personal experience. After all, these apparitions do know how to evade your fancy technology, for the most part. So let's start with the creeper. While this is a phenomenon that is known to occur in many places, earlier on I postulated that this particular entity might be something completely different from what is witnessed at other locations. My reasoning behind that is that I think it is directly connected to our subject, Ricky. Based on our research, which you heard earlier, it would appear that the first manifestation of the creeper could potentially be linked to the incident where the black mist appeared and sheltered Ricky shortly after taking the shape of a human. One little tidbit we forgot to mention during the previous conversation with Jamie is that prior to everything exploding in the EST room, one of the nurses briefly glimpsed a dark shadow in the shape of a person crouched on all fours behind Ricky and extending its head around him as to observe the nurse. At a second glance, the nurse said it had disappeared. Again, I can only offer my own theories here, but come along with me on this. What if the creeper is not the common death eater entity that is seen in other sanatoriums and medical facilities? What if this is a leftover psychic projection from a traumatized child who is gifted way beyond our understanding? My reasoning for this? Well, Forgive me for not going into the horrid details, but I will openly state that I was a very troubled youth. So much so that in my early teenage years, I was put into the system, and the system failed and abused me, much like Ricky. There are parallels to his story and mine that speak to me on a deeply personal level. This entity followed me around all night and showed mannerisms one would associate with curiosity as if it recognized me. And in turn, by the end of our visit, I had shaken the shock and the fear off, and I found myself feeling a strange sort of connection to this shadow. It was that instinctual feeling that inspired me to try to get closer to it. I felt a familiarity with it as well. That's one theory. But let's say that's not the case, which brings me to my second hypothesis that connects all of my own personal interactions with what exists between those walls and why some of this phenomenon seemed to follow me the rest of the evening. Let's say our lingering entity really is one of these common phantoms that seem to lurk around when death is near. During the Estes session, Ama was watching remotely and said that she saw what looked like an apparition of a doctor or perhaps an orderly 
that appeared to be scanning or examining me. At one point, the shape seemed to actually dig their hand into my abdomen, to which I responded physically by abruptly sitting upright in pain, grabbing my side. Not long after this is when I felt fingers running over my scalp as I was conducting the experiment. So here's the thing. I have been very sick the last couple of months. Actually, much longer than that, but I didn't know it. I didn't find out about my situation until months after I returned from this investigation, because it was hiding in the background. It was only the last few months that it started to manifest in a way that I could tell that something was wrong. Permit me to pass on sharing all the details, as I don't really feel comfortable talking about it. Some things are personal. But I'm sharing this little sliver with you all for a purpose, which will make sense at the end of this rant. Something followed me home from Waverly. But unlike whatever it was that followed me back from the Sally house, this was less of a playful trickster interaction and more aggressive. My physical state went into a bit of a downward spiral that seemed alien to me. I felt wrong inside and out. The decline was sharp enough and obvious enough that it compelled me to push back on my doctors who claimed I was fine. After much persistence and a whole lot of healthcare system chess, I found out what was wrong. And I'm happy to say that I'm doing okay, and I'm going to be okay. Although this is the beginning of a long journey of life changes and monitoring my health better. <laughs> What's worth noting is that the places on my body where I felt I was touched are the same places that proved to be problematic. So the other theory that I have is this. Maybe the reason that all of these anomalies were so anchored to me during this trip is that they knew I was not well, and they were trying to warn me. The moral of the story here is that when the universe throws something at you that scares you, that you can't understand, that makes no sense, take a breath and let it in. The worlds here and beyond might be trying to tell you something. And I truly do believe that I was given a warning, and I shudder to think what would have happened if I didn't react. Once again, these are all only my own personal thoughts about the experience and should not reflect the thoughts of anyone else on the team. These are just the things that I think about and what I feel. For now, that's going to wrap it up, and we're going to begin our journey down the hill until the next time we return to Waverly Hills. A few updates to share before we close up the spooky shop tonight. First off, we will be dark next week, but we will return on October 6th for a special crossover with Unearthing Paranormalcy and Primordia from the Green Mushroom Podcast Network to kick off the spooky season. Second, two episodes of Twin Geeks will debut this month. For those of you unfamiliar, Twin Geeks is a subseries I do here on XV Planets with my friend Beth, where we dive off into the Purple Sea and ramble about the insanity of our favorite show, Twin Peaks. This is always fun for me because at times I need a break from the field work and, you know, just hang out and talk backwards in the Red Room with another David Lynch fanatic like myself. Our next set of episodes covering our investigations will debut on October 14th on our Patreon and then October 16th everywhere else. And speaking of our Patreon, I'd love to give a shout out to our first subscribers, Alicia Duffy, Janelle Deetham, and Meg, who you all know by now. Thank you all for the support. And the first official off-the-cuff Patreon-exclusive episode, Ghost Math and Investigation Fumbles, will finally be released next week. That's going to wrap it up this evening, friends and fiends. And that is a wrap 
on Waverly Hills Sanatorium. For now, at least. A huge thank you to everyone involved from the investigation to the research and everything in between. I could not have done any of this without each and every one of you. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, everywhere as XVPlanist, and you can follow my own personal misadventures and music projects on Folds and Floods on those same platforms. Links for both are in the show notes. If you like what we do here, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to rate and review us. And tell your friends about us. Tell your families about us. Hell, yell at random people in the grocery store about us. We are an independent production, and currently we will only be able to grow through positive reviews and by word of mouth from you, dear listeners. You can also support us by going to www.patreon.com slash xvplanis and subscribing to gain access to our exclusive content. Be sure to check out all the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, like Grognostics, Administrism, Smuts Up, and so many more. You can check them out by going to www.tgmpodcastnetwork.com. The show is produced in Durham, North Carolina, and is written, edited, and scored by yours truly. Music from the show can be found on my Bandcamp page for Folds and Floods or anywhere you stream your music. No part of this show or its music may be reproduced without consent. Copyright Folds and Floods Productions. Once again, I am your host, Flood, and this has been XV Planus. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. I'll see you in the between. In Abumbratio, in Fluctus, Subvalo. What scares you? Ghosts, aliens, monsters, the occult, conspiracies. Some of you like to be scared, and unearthing paranormalcy is for you. Some of you try everything you can to avoid it. Unearthing paranormalcy is for you. We take the topics that scare some, and we dig in to find the source, then present the history to make the paranormal a little more normal. We also throw in a bit of comedy to shed a light on some of the darkness in the world. So whether you're scared of bumps in the night, what's inside your own mind, or strange lights in the sky, we cover it all. We dig in and present all that we find and try to come up with some logical and not so logical reasons for the high strangeness happenings. Sometimes we are scared of the things we don't understand. And the more we understand, the less we fear. So find us, Unearthing Paranormalcy, on your favorite podcast app. And join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at UMP Normalcy. And until next time, keep digging.